0: All right, we're going to read today from the Gospel of Matthew and the book of James. And they'll be up here on the screen behind me where you can take out a Bible and read along. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, uh, Bethpage to the Mountain of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats uh, of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of God, they were indignant. Uh, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And from the book of James, chapter 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank thank you that you are the one who speaks to us. That you are not hidden from us. But have indeed put yourself on display. That we might see you. That we might hear you. That we might respond to you. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, that is precisely what will happen this morning that our hearts would be laid open before you, and we would respond, giving you the acclaim that you deserve. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, obviously, um, we, we come today uh, on this high holy day on the calendar, the, last, the Sunday of the Masters. Um, and also it's Palm Sunday. Um, this is the beginning of Holy Week. This is for us um, the pinnacle of our remembering and celebrating. And uh, it's going to be a good week. It's going to be a good long week. And we are, we are able to enter into the story of the gospel with, as people who understand what's coming at the end of it. So we are not here on Palm Sunday saying, I wonder what's going to happen this week. Um, We know what's going to happen this week. And that does not corrupt our experience of Palm Sunday. It helps us better understand it. And so we get to hear and to read the story of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, his triumphal entry what happens on Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday, in fact, illuminates this moment for us so that we can best see what is going on. And we come in our church to this day in at the end of a series on these seven deadly sins. And I told you the ordering of these seven was pretty much random, except for this one. The... Uh, this Sunday, we're talking about about pride and vainglory, um, which felt immediately appropriate as I looked at the calendar and what where we would be on the church calendar. Uh, vainglory and and pride are not quite the same thing. Uh, Rebecca DeYoung describes them as sort of like cousins or. They're sort of like twins of each other. They're not quite the same thing. They're slightly different, but they're very similar. Uh, Vainglory is the desire for acclaim, the desire for applause, the desire to be noticed and celebrated. And pride is the conviction that you really are worth that pride and acclaim, that you are, in fact, better. But you can be prideful without being vainglorious. You could be somebody who's just content to quietly know that you're better than everyone. Um, You're probably looking for somebody to verify that at some point, but you can basically keep it together and just know that you're superior. Many of us probably toggle between both of these things, the conviction that we are, in fact, the very best and the desire for people to go ahead and recognize that truth, that we are the very best. And we live in a world that is full of gasoline for this fire that burns in our bones. We live in a place and a time that is, I would say, uniquely constructed to play upon what every human ever has wrestled with. Every human ever has Has wrestled with the conviction that they, in fact, know that they know best at any given moment about either some things or everything. Every Christian ever has struggled with that. And every person in all of humanity has, at various times, felt that they were worth being recognized for one reason or another. However, we have the tools at our fingers that are constantly being pointed at those specific spots in our hearts and in our character to make us constantly crave the recognition of who we truly are. And we live in a uniquely tempting time that this truly becomes not just temptation or sin, it becomes really and truly a vice, a habit of our hearts and our active lives that we seek out the approval and recognition from other people. Our children are trained in this from the very beginning, and we as adults just carry that training right along into our ordinary lives. Our world is now a, a just a vainglorious machine. We are constructed around the celebration of everything that we can, not really for its quality or substance, but really just because we like loud and showy and noisy things. And the next person that can create the next sort of pop on the horizon gets our next moment of attention and acclaim and we put it on our devices, we scroll through it for hours, and maybe you're saying, I don't do the social media thing, I, uh, I have nothing to do with that. God bless you, you have uh, recused yourself from insanity, but you probably engage in some other form. If you watch the news at all, it is basically a social media machine on your television that scrolls through rapidly again and again and again to show you the next person who is standing up to grab your attention to get your approval. Politicians for all of time in history have existed for grabbing the microphone even before microphones really existed, but we now magnify politicians and theoretical leaders who don't hesitate to be the silliest, most foolish people as loudly as possible so that they can occupy your attention for just a moment longer to perpetuate their own careers and leverage their own power. Our whole social economy is tied up in this vice so that now it's barely even recognizable as a vice. In our place in time, the quest for acclaim is a virtue. And we are most all of us engaged in it. And pride, James shows us in this chapter, is both a sin that poisons us and the prison that keeps us in that sin. What he's describing is these people who are caught in sin... ...and behaving the way the world behaves. And they are double-minded. They are torn between the way the world thinks... ...and the way way that the people of God are supposed to think. And they can't acknowledge what the proper response is... ...which is to humble themselves before God... ...to repent of their sin. The the call to, to mourning is this call... ...to repentance. And he warns them... ...that this is they are caught between two forces. He's telling them... ...resist the devil... ...and God will free you. Humble yourself before God... ...and God will deliver you. But it's pride itself... ...that, that leads us towards sin... ...at any given moment... ...when you choose... ...what is actively against the will of God... ...it is underneath that choice whether you're paying attention to it or not, is the conviction, I know better than what God has told me. I know that I ought to do X, Y, or Z, but guess what? I am better at determining what is right and what is wrong than God Himself. I know that this behavior will only give me temporary pleasure. This pleasure is better. I will decide. And you go down the path of sin. And you know and I know that the way out Often is only through opening up your hands, opening up your mouth and saying, I have sinned. I was wrong. But what does it feel like in that moment when you know you are coming to the very precipice of humility? It feels like someone has stuck a key in the side of your jaw and rotated clockwise just one or two or three notches tighter and you cannot open your mouth to say what you know you ought to say. I cannot tell you how many times I have found myself in that moment with my wife, the person who is most frequently the victim of my sin where I know that I was wrong, and I cannot get my jaws to open one-eighth of an inch to begin saying the words, I was wrong. Something in me cranks down under the weight of all my pride to refuse to acknowledge my wrong. And yet the moment that my jaw is finally broken, the doors to prison are flung wide. And I'm free. My wife, who is gracious and merciful and way better than me, forgives me, truly forgives me. And our relationship is, in that moment, rightly repaired. And my own sinfulness and its products, its damages are left behind and healed. It is only through humility that I am set free from prison. And this is not just a marital dynamic, this is a dynamic you experience with friends, with coworkers, with peers. You are tempted to justify and to win arguments and to prop up your own prize. But in the moment of surrender, when you say, I don't need to justify or defend a terrible choice, but I need to humble myself and say, I, I am not the best at determining what is right. In fact, I was wrong. That is when you are free. And that dynamic that we experience interpersonally is merely a reflection of the truth of the way that we relate with God. God, the moment of your freedom comes, not when you can somehow convince God to change his mind and be in your side, which is not going to happen, but is the moment when you surrender and you rightly recognize his position and yours so James says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And what is the surprising thing? Is he will exalt you. The lie of pride is that I must defend myself and enforce the borders of my territory. And humility feels like a surrender of all those borders and that power. And so what you are afraid of, I will be overcome. I will be conquered and vanquished. But James tells us the truth. In this surprising moment of surrender, that is when God makes you who you were meant to be, elevates and exalts you. And nowhere do you see this more clearly than in everything that we will look at this week. The moment that Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he knowingly does so with all the burdens of messianic expectation. Jesus knows the scriptures. Jesus knows Zechariah chapter 9. Jesus knows that when he tells his disciples to go get that donkey for him to ride in on, the people will remember the words of the prophet. They will take all of their expectation, swirling around this descendant of David, and they will see him appropriating the imagery of Zechariah chapter 9, and they will know he is making a kind of claim here. And still their expectation is defined by their own pride. I know what is right and what is best. Therefore, I know how this Messiah one is going to act. And what he will do is he will ride in on a donkey, a common animal, but at some point he's going to hop off that donkey, he's going to get on a horse, and he's going to kill some Romans. And he's going to set us free. So, yeah, great. The donkey thing, cool. Let's celebrate that. I get it. Zechariah 9, I hear the whole thing. Man, Jesus is going to kill some Romans. I know exactly what is right, what is good, and what I need. This moment is suffused with the pride of the people. And the, the confusion that's present is exactly the confusion that we experience because their reasoning has all the trappings of religious faithfulness. They are using the words of the prophets, the expectations of some portions of the scripture, and they are able to mix in their own prideful expectations of what Jesus will do, and it will feel like that they are rightly discerning the moment. And yet the truth is that Jesus is the truly humble one. And he's actually showing them what he intends to do when he gets on that donkey. He's not saying this is the pretense. This is the mask. And one time in a couple days or a couple weeks, I'm going to hop off onto the war horse and doing something different. He's saying, no, this is really who I am. I am the one riding on this humble beast of burden, coming to do a work that you will not be able to discern. There is no trickery in Jesus. He is entirely who he is all the way through, completely submitted to the will of the Father, the God of Israel. He is the picture of humility. And in the same way that the moment of humility, the moment of surrender in our own lives is the means of deliverance, Jesus is the embodiment, the demonstration of how this works. Because Jesus is showing the people that the God of Israel will choose to work this way forever. The way that this works in the world will continue to be this way. The moment of humility, the moment of powerlessness, the moment ultimately of his own death is the moment not when everything is actually lost, but in a surprising and unforeseen way. This moment of ultimate humiliation will become the, the platform upon which God displays his unconquerable power. Jesus is not powerless In this moment of triumphal entry. The story is loaded with irony. Because the crowds themselves. Will be the ones that plead for his crucifixion. When the people get to the moment where they realize. This is the whole game. That there is no war horse. But he does not intend to do what they expected him to do. But he will not fulfill their own vainglorious ambitions. The fury of their disappointment will fuel their cries for crucifixion. And we know that that's coming. We can read this story in light of what's coming on Good Friday. And what you are meant to do as you read this story in light of the crucifixion and the resurrection, is see again with awe what the people will only look on in that week with disappointment. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus helps us look backwards at the triumphal entry and to marvel at his love and his power. Jesus is the truly humble one. Jesus is the one whose answer to the Father is a perpetual yes, your will, and not mine. Jesus is the one who deserves no imprisonment in sin, and through his own humble power will destroy everything that pride tries to imprison you in. He will receive all of the pain, the torment, and indeed the wrath that pride deserves. Humbly embracing everything that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always purposed to do. So that he might win conquest over you and me. Jesus is riding in to victory here. And you and I still often do not know what victory looks like. Many of us are in this place angry at God, confused by God, hurt by God, because He has not done what you always expected him to do. You have demands of him and expectations of him and he has refused to give you whatever that thing is. And maybe you have indeed suffered in life. You have suffered loneliness, betrayal. Maybe you have suffered at your own hand, the hand of your own sin. And your objection to God is, I expected otherwise of you. Why have you not done as I knew you would? And I cannot answer for you all of these questions. Some of you are asking why for good reason. Some of you are in the middle of things that you you will understand later. In, in days or weeks or months or even years, you will look back and say, ah, that's what was going on. I get it now. But some of you are in the middle of those whys and you will never know. It will be a mystery to you until you die. I cannot answer for you why these things have happened. But what I can tell you is people have always been uniquely bad at understanding what God is up to. That we interpret the moment of God's victory as his chief failure. The disciples at the cross are saying, this is the worst. It's over. And what they did not and could not recognize was that this is precisely the moment that God had ordained his victory. Jesus is still riding towards you. Jesus is still entering in the main thoroughfare of your own heart. And you may not recognize what he is up to. But what you can see in this moment is that you can trust him. You may not understand him. You will not be able to control him. He refuses to grant you the reins of history. But you can trust him. No one will deal more tenderly or mercifully with you than Jesus. So even in your questioning and your anger, if you would yet be in the room with Jesus, you would find that he would be kind towards you. But in the moment of your surrender and saying, I do not understand or fully know, you will find that the humble one will still draw near to you and promise his presence with you forever. And if you realize today you have lived your whole life tightly in control of the reins of power, And you have said, I will not yield my expectations to any man and not to God Himself. The Bible has for you an invitation. You need to repent. You need to let go. You need to humble yourself. And you need to turn around and face this God and say, You are God and I am not. And that thing that you are afraid of is that in that moment, God will crush you. That by surrendering all of your power and control, you will be demolished and annihilated. But the truth and the good news of the gospel is when you surrender, you will find not the end of your life, but the beginning. God will not Grind you into the dust. He will instead take your surrender and bring you to a place of flourishing within his own life that you cannot even yet imagine. So, today, if you know that you are one of the ones who has spent your whole life missing the God of Israel pass you by, do not harden your heart. Do not seek to clamp down and maintain control. But instead, open your mouth. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And he will bring you in to the exalted life of his son. And you will never be imprisoned again.